Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, and I am excited today, as I always am, to talk with a really cool guest um, who I will probably never see in person, probably never get to go down to where she lives, but I'm talking to uh, my new friend, Representative Jasmine Crockett from Texas. Texas has been in the news for many reasons, especially lately, um, the assault or worries about voting rights in the state. And Jasmine has been leading the cause, both for that, criminal justice reform, many other issues in Texas. And she wouldn't have been able to do that had she not taken up the mantle and run for office herself. So today we're going to talk about her story, what's going on in her state, and how she's getting involved, and hopefully encourage you to run for office as well. So Jasmine, thank you so much for talking uh, today and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I I have, a, even though I'm from Philly, I have good memories of being in Dallas. Um, I went there many, like 30 years ago, and still was a good time when I saw family who lived there. I have family in McKinney, which is not too far from you. Um, and But it's a very different place from when I was there 30 years ago, right? Like, you're a part of Texas. Um, tell, me, tell me what it's like in, in your area of the state and the country. So, yeah. So, um, first of all, I'm Jasmine Crockett. I am the state representative for House District 100, which is located in the heart of Dallas. Um, so, I represent an area called South Dallas, which is just south of Highway 30, um, historically African-American area. Um, and then my district goes far east. I get the very beginning of a, a town called Mesquite. Um, and then I, I personally live in West Dallas, which is historically another um, African-American area within Dallas. So I have what we call a majority-minority district. It is 40% Hispanic, 40% Black, and 20% White. Um, as a civil rights attorney, I thought we'd be a better fit for this district. So um, I was really excited. Um, it was not my first time running for office, but we'll get into that a little later. Um, but yeah, my area is really more so inner city, urban um, type district. And I was really interested because there's a lot of people who are attorneys who are in public office at any level, um, but there's not enough people who have focused on civil rights. Um, were What uh, pushed you into this line of work, not just running for office, but a focus on civil rights legislation and protecting people? Yeah, so when I graduated law school, and so I was defending the large corporations every time you know, there was a class action of plaintiffs that were coming together. And uh, I really questioned why I became a lawyer at that point. Um, I was working on a class action case where women um, had cancer. And we were arguing that the product uh, that, that they were suing over did not cause them to have cancer. And honestly, in the depths of my soul, I like, did cause cancer. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, why did I become an attorney? Because this is not what I imagined I should be doing. And so um, they were just starting a public defender's office in Texarkana. And I thought, at least I'll get some courtroom experience. Maybe I should go ahead and apply for this position. Um, I became a public defender. And truly, my view on the world began to change. Um, I think that 
becoming a public defender really opened me up to understand things like systemic racism. Mm -hmm. I finally understood what that looked like um, as I worked as a public defender. I also started to understand um, that there were significant issues in policing uh, just because of stories that I would get from my clients. And when I would have, you know, five different clients making similar complaints about the same officer. Um, and these clients did not know each other. Mm -hmm. It really piqued my curiosity. Once I relocated and opened a second office in Dallas, um, things kind of just came to a head. Um, and I was thrust into the business, so to speak, um, when the officers were killed as a protest was taking place. Um, there was a gentleman that was accused of being the shooter that was, or was, I don't know that he was accused of being the shooter. Instead, he was a suspect where they ultimately determined who the actual shooter was. And we were called in almost immediately, myself and my law partner at that time, uh, who was Lee Merritt. And so after we were called in on that case and people saw us on national news, it kind of just went from there. Um, but, you know, I also felt as if responsibility that was on my life as a black to do something a little bit more than make money. Um, and so that's what kind of got me into the work and that work and the injustices, you know, would continually see, um, whether it was in the courtroom for a criminal case or the courtroom for a civil rights case. Um, really led me to say, maybe we need to fix the legislation itself. And you are a first-term legislator right now. I, I've seen from the things you've been doing, you have definitely not been a first-term person who just sat in the back and waited, right? Like, you have, you got into office and realized you, you probably only have, you might only have a few months, you, you know? You don't know how much time you have as a legislator, given that you're up for office. Um, what has been your approach not just to running, but to, you know, being there and, and your first time. Yeah. So, you know, I think for anyone that's in office, you really, it, it takes a little while to figure out how is it that I fit into this puzzle? Mm -hmm. What will be my style? And so initially um, I had no idea of what I was doing. Orientation was not helpful. Um, you know, I just knew that I wanted to write laws, um, as far as of how all of that occurred, I did not understand, um, exactly how all that would happen. So there was a lot of learning at the very beginning. Um, but once we started to have committee hearings, I felt very comfortable because we are dealing in areas of law. And so, you know, I would question, um, we question, uh, and beat up on, not for the purpose of being mean, but before people's lives are affected, say with sure that they're very well vetted. And so I think that I played a, a huge role in vetting a lot of the criminal laws because I sat on the criminal jurisprudence committee. In addition to that, I sat on business and industry where we heard a lot of the uh, workers comps claims and um, like the laws kind of surrounding that. And obviously workers comp was another big area of discussion considering we were dealing with COVID. Like, right? Like, who should be allowed to collect? Should they be allowed to collect without proving that they had COVID? Just all kinds of, you know, different issues that we really needed to flesh out. And so I do think that background was helpful 
But by the time we got to the floor, that was a completely different beast. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it became more so of a, of a courtroom to me, um, on the floor. And to the point we have a, a process where if you're laying out a bill or, or presenting that bill to the body and attempting to get the body to vote that bill up, then you go to the front mic. But if you want to challenge that bill or ask questions about that bill or vet that bill, you go to the back mic. Well, we were told early on that freshmen do not go to the back mic. Back mic. Um, I somehow uh, just ignored that lesson. I tried. I tried to stay off the back mic. Um, and just kind of learn and pay attention. But, you know, we had issues such as the defund movement. We had race, critical race theory. We had um, voting issues. We had a bill requiring that the star-spangled banner all games. We had all these crazy bills coming through. Right. And uh, as a civil rights lawyer, the last thing that I was going to do was sit on my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I ultimately was punished for not sitting in my chair um, but you know what, I wouldn't change anything about the way that I operated. Well, you know, it's one thing if you were a freshman legislator and you were sitting there and the, the bills you're learning about are, you know, how we fund bridges or, you know, what we do with, um, I don't know, unemployment law and like the intricacies of it. Not that you don't know it as a lawyer yourself, but like you said, these are ridiculous things. How I, it seems odd to me to request to expect anyone, especially a lawmaker who understands this, to be silent when there's such silliness going on. Right. Yeah. It was. That was how I saw it as well. Um, you know. Ultimately, all of my bills were killed. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, as far as I was concerned, those bills never had a guarantee of passing. Um, our house is Republican led. Our Senate is Republican-led, and the governor's mansion um, is occupied by Governor Abbott, who is a Republican as well. And uh, I was pushing pretty progressive policies. Um, Nothing really extreme, in my opinion. Um, But, you know, my bills were making it through and out of bipartisan committees, committees where the majorities were definitely Republicans, and they were still making it out of committee. So I had really good bills. Um, but when it came to calendars, because, you know, I was challenging some of these things that these lawmakers were attempting to pass, you know, it was a problem. And the biggest problem was just that they didn't know their bills, bills. And so, you know, it's one of those things where they look bad, so to speak, right? Because there's a freshman and then there's a senior member and the freshman is showing the senior member up. When it's it's not about that for me. For me, it's about the people, and I think that the record needs to be clear on why we are trying to pass certain legislation. I think that we should be challenging. I think that any um, good lawmaker, any seasoned lawmaker, should be able to defend what it is that they are trying to write into law in the first place. So I have no regrets. I'm sure some of them have regrets. Well, I, I wonder <laughs> but, how many. I have no regrets. Yeah, I wonder how many of them do have regrets. It's been ridiculous kind of seeing the debates happening on voting rights. And um, from my experience talking to legislators across the country, it seems like there's almost two Republican parties on the state level. There's the people who've been Republican for a long time, like people, I don't know how moderate she was, but like people like Kay Bailey Hutchinson from Texas years ago, 
oh, she would be someone who would work with anyone, maybe. I don't know. I'm not advocating for or against her. But then you have the conspiratorial QAnon Republicans who are kind of infecting the party, kind of like the Matrix movies. Um, is that do you, is there a push and pull there now, or is it just full-blown... Um, you know, fringe now, and and you guys are the bulwarks against, um, against the conspiracies. Um, it definitely the senior most female Democrat, well, senior most female, senior most black, senior most Democrats in front of Thompson. Um, she has been in the legislature for forty eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, then in speaking to Royce West, who is one of our senators, who's been there for twenty eight years. They both say that this is the most session they've had. Now, how is it that she's been in the ledge for 48 years and this is the most conservative? What that does is it shows you that we're actually going back in time instead of moving forward. You know, it is because of kind of this fringe movement that I see. Um, It's the Trumpism as far as I'm concerned. I walked around the Capitol about a week or two ago it feels like Trump is here uh, because of the legislation that was being pushed. And sure enough, Trump came out and endorsed my governor um, about two days ago, uh, his reelection bid. And so there's a lot of posturing, a lot of um, elected officials that are attempting to please Trump, because as far as I'm concerned, the Republican Party isn't. It is now the party of Trump. And so everything that we see happening is in an effort to please Trump and not be on the opposite side of him. And that's a very scary thing. Um, I think that works better together out of the aisle you were from um, when it was just kind of like a belief system difference, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're just like at the core of me, I believe X and at the core of me, I believe Y. Right. Um, and each side respected each other's various beliefs, but it was never fighting or, or beating up on the other. Now we see very racist policies that are being put into place. Um, and so the, the divisiveness that we experienced under the Trump administration, to me, that divide is only being deepened. And the only thing that is going to help um, kind of turn us around is if a lot of those people's, a lot of independents really are the ones that in these elections, mm-hmm. um, you've got your solid D's, you've got your solid R's and usually it's those in the middle that flip things. And I, I think the middle is, is about to really cause some things to flip in a way that will be negative for those that are attempting to please Trump. Yeah, you know, I was just listening to a podcast about uh, different conspiracies. They're talking about this big QAnon conference in your area, um, not in your district, but like um, the chairman of the Re- Texas Republican Party was there, and like he, like you have people who are not just like, oh yeah, there are some crazy people, and like it's the head of the party and the Congress members from the party in Texas who are, you know, going to these what should be fringe movements, but they're giving it a lot of credibility. I assume and hope that, you know, people in Dallas, which is, um, you know, a growing metropolitan area, right? Like 
they probably are not liking that kind of movement from a party that is moving in that direction. Yeah. Um, you know, it, fine. Um, you know, I feel like we are a melting pot. We're continuing to grow, as you stated. In fact, we added another 160,000 people in the midst of the pandemic. Um, we grew. We grew more than any other area um, in the state. And the other part of this was and was that they were continually attacking those cities and those counties that are primarily run by Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that we saw out of He would attack those states or those governors that were uh, Democratic, right? And so we're seeing that play out as well, um, which also kind of is one of the reasons that I argue kind of the racial undertones because we tend to see in the more diverse areas uh, more Democratic leadership. And uh, so we had a number of bills that were for the largest the largest five cities were the only ones that were the targets. Right. Um, so it was, a, it was a very unfortunate situation to be in. And, and I do think the tide will turn. I think, I think we'll really see when we go through this upcoming midterm election cycle. Now, one thing I, I do want to bring up that you just talked about was that all these local and state Republicans are up in arms about critical race theory and the 1619 project. I don't understand it because I have, I'm a white male. I have two uh, boys who are going through public school. I don't understand why there's a problem with teaching my kids about this history. It seems more important to teach my kids about it um, than to kind of brush it under the rug. Is this something that's come out of nowhere because of online movements? You know, what's, what do you see as the problem here? And why should people across the country maybe be worried about the movement against it? I have no idea where it came from. Um, I was really caught off guard. I was caught off guard that we were wasting taxpayer time, money, energy on such ridiculous things. Um, You know, but I look at it like this. I think that we are at a precipice in this country. And, you know, they always say, those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. And it almost feels as if they want us to have a repeat of history. So therefore let's deny it. Let's whitewash it. Let's completely um, eliminate the facts of it so that we can have a repeat. Um, Because I don't really understand, you know, the facts are the facts. So why are we attempting to, hide the facts, right? Um, I believe that we should all be more educated on what this country has gone through, whether it was, you know, slavery or whether it was the civil rights movement or whether it was Jim Crow or whatever, right? I think that it is what it is. And, you know, we want to make sure that we don't repeat some of those darker points in our history Sadly enough, it seems like we are moving towards uh, reoffending and and doing some of those things as we go forward. Yeah, I also, from your work just now on voting rights, it seems like if they can pretend that racism never happened somehow, then 
they can get away with passing some very racially motivated voter ID or um, other kinds of um, election restrictions, right? Like, is that part of the thinking there? Like, well, we can pretend that nothing is ever racist, so it's okay for us to deny these people um, the equal rights in, in terms of the vote. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, the majority of our stances comes from what was historically done, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we went through this before. This is what it was. This is what it looks like. Well, if you're trying to make sure that the current generation doesn't know anything about that, then it's harder for you to make those arguments in a very logical way. Like, hey, we've been here before. Right. Um, you know, it's really sad because what I perceive is happening is that there is a shift in power. There's a, a shift in the demographics in general throughout this country. Um, you know, the United States has always been kind of the welcoming country, the melting pot. We've always had like this great diversity throughout the entire United States. And I think that that was okay so long as diversity equated to minority. But in the state of Texas, we actually are a majority minority state at this point. Mm -hmm. And the data that we're getting, while we don't have the official census just yet, we get like preliminary data that the demographers provide and things like that. And all of the preliminary data suggests that the explosion of growth that's occurred in the last 10 years, at least in the state of Texas, has been primarily led by minorities. Um, and so I want to say, you know, uh, I want to say over 60% may have been Hispanic as far as the growth. Um, a little under 20% for African-Americans and Asians right behind that. Um, it was white persons that were uh, at the bottom mm -hmm. as far as the growth. And the numbers were just insane. Um, and I want to say maybe close to 60% of Texas is something other than white at this point. So if you can say, hey, if you're any other, anyone other than a privileged person we're going to make it difficult for you to vote right um and so you know we had crazy things like if you take somebody to go to vote so if i literally have which i do i have some seniors that want me to come and pick them up and take them to vote they mm -hmm. love that i'm the one that personally grabs them if i go to pick them up because miss Susie, who doesn't drive anymore right um and is handicapped um, says, hey, come get me. I want to go vote. If I take them to go vote, then there's documentation that I have to fill out that has my personal information on. And there's a bit of an explanation that they want me to provide. And it's in the form of an affidavit. And if I don't fill that information out, then there may be criminal consequences, felony criminal consequences. This is all to put a chilling effect on um, those that are disabled, to put a chilling effect on those that Literally, when I talk about privilege, we're talking about those people that, you know, may be a working mom yeah. of, 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 you know, two or three, but still not able to make ends meet, who has to use public transportation. And, you know, she really wants to vote. And, it, and she may call up a campaign and say, hey, come get me. Um, and they're going to try to make it more difficult for those that really can't make it to the polls themselves. 
Um, they want to limit the hours because they saw in Houston where they offered 24-hour voting and they saw a huge increase in voting. And that increase was mostly people of color. And so now they're like, oh, there's fraud. And it's like, no, there was accessibility. There's a difference. There's mm-hmm. a difference in accessibility and fraud. So that's kind of what we've been dealing with. Um, but I, I do want to applaud all the members of my party that decided that enough was enough and decided to walk out on that terrible bill. So two things. One, I remember reading about famous Texas lawmaker, Lyndon Johnson, who got into office by doing what you just said, driving people to the polls and a famous story and master of the Senate that I really recommend um, people read. So, you know, Texas has a history of people driving to the polls, not just minority people, like people of all backgrounds, including a future president. But, um, you know, the it was really inspiring seeing your team of Texans walk out. Um, that may not have happened had you not been there, right? Like you kind of tell people, this is urgent. This is why it's important that people run for office and not just take anything for granted. Like, yeah, someone else will do it, right? This is why we need to encourage people to take their energy and be in the halls of power like you are today. Absolutely. You know, um, I, I was the rebel raiser mm-hmm. <laughs> um, of my class for sure. And, and potentially just in the house overall, um, I was, you know, fearless. I didn't, I didn't come into this position to be timid. I came to be mm-hmm. bold. And, you know, in the face of all of the adversity, I was, I was growing frustrated because um, I, I did see that our party it felt like a good majority of them were kind of like, oh, well, this is just what happens. And we're used to being in the minority and there's nothing we can do. And we'll get here and we'll talk about it. And right. our district will see that we talked on the bill. And I'm like, it's it's deeper than that. Like they have <laughs> they have steamrolled us. And so I was having these individual talks about the level of frustration that I had. And I would say things like it's a team sport. I need my team to get in the game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do think that some of those that really probably felt the same way that I did, but they didn't know that there were any others that felt that way. I think it was more so like for some people, it was always within them. Right. But they maybe felt like they were alone. Mm -hmm. And as those conversations began to happen, it's like, yes, that's how I feel, too. Right. Um, But we didn't really have those conversations taking place with leadership, like leadership wasn't really evoking these emotions out of people um, and, and getting them to this place. So, you know, I think it was really there within a good number of people already. It just wasn't said. Um, but but we eventually got it together. And, and literally, it wasn't until that day. We had been talking about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't until that day, almost really the minutes before it happened, that it actually happened. I mean... We didn't know if the rest of our colleagues were, were really going to do it. The last vote before we left the building showed that we needed another 15 people to leave. Wow. So the vast majority of us had already gone, but we were still 15 over. And so, you know, we were like, forget it. We're heading to the church. We're going to do our press conference. If they were able to keep a quorum because, you know, not enough Dems walked out a few of our colleagues let us down, then we'll just have a conversation about that. Right. Um, otherwise, you know, hopefully the rest will come on. And we knew some that were 
kind of part of the plan. They were doing some things on the floor. We knew that they were coming, but we were, you know, we couldn't lose really one person. Otherwise we were done. Um, and so ultimately more people left than said that they would. We only had about 48 or 49 that initially said they would leave. We have a total of 67 Democrats in the house. So um, ultimately 62 of the 67 left. That was never our number. Our number was like 48, 49. And then we had a few that were out. So that was enough to break forum. So I was happy that, you know, the majority of them ultimately left. But I think that's the, the beautiful part about young, new people coming in. And when I say young, I mean both young in general, but also young in the sense that they're new to the process. Yes, yes. I think that they really allow for the challenges. I think that they just add a new flavor. And, you know, sometimes you need that injection into the process because the processes have been around forever, right? Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, you need somebody to shake it up. When somebody's been in office for 20, 30 years, they've been doing the same thing for the last 20 or 30 years, right? Um, And it's hard to get them to to think outside the box or be outside the box. And so, you know, I do encourage people that really have a burning fire within them um, to just go ahead and do it, right? Like, don't just do it and just throw your name out there, but do it and get organized, you know, really make an, a, a, a good faith effort. I was the underdog in my race. Um, not that I should have been, but I wasn't backed by the establishment. And so my opponent who had just graduated from law school, I had been a mentor to one of her best friends in law school. Um, you know, she ran against me and she had five times the money that I had. She had the endorsements of the likes of Beto O'Rourke, uh, Wendy Davis, and so many more mm-hmm. um, in her candidacy. And those, even those big names came in. Beto came in and knocked doors for her. He made calls for her. They did everything they could to kind of push her into the position. But I was of the people. Um, and so we had a volunteer team of approximately 100 volunteers, which is a ton Yeah, when you think about a, a state uh, legislative seat because no one really pays attention to our seats. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was great. And I, I excited young people and they got out there in the middle of the pandemic and they poll greeted, they knocked doors, they sent text messages, they made calls, they do, they did whatever it took. And so for those that are looking to run for office, I always think that it's important for you to go ahead and, and put in some time with another candidate, another, all candidates need volunteers. Um, even if you don't have money, volunteering your time can be invaluable, but it also teaches you what to expect. It's easy to say that you want to be in a position, but what does it take to get there? And when you volunteer for another campaign, you really figure out, do I really want this position? Do I really have the stamina to do this? Um, and you learn a few tricks along the way. Um, so I would encourage those that want to run, absolutely do it. But when you do it, make a gallant effort. Make sure that you're putting in the time to do the research on what the job is. Make sure you're putting in the time to figure out who's done what and who hasn't done what they were supposed to do. Make sure that you give of your time and your energy to another campaign so that you'll know what you need to do to make sure that you get yours off the ground. Well, I'm really glad you ran. I think that's the kind of fire that we want in any elected official. I agree with you on, like, talking to people and hearing about 
how a lot of people in office in any state were just waiting for someone like that to come along. Um, but you can't just wait. You have to run. So if people want to learn more about you, if they want to be inspired by you and, and follow you on social media, what do you think? What is the best way that people like me from Arkansas or Alaska can follow you online? Yeah, so um, I can be found at Jasmine, J-A-S-M-I-N-E, 4, F-O-R, 100 on all social media platforms, including TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, I am so trying to finish a TikTok on the walkout that I think people will really enjoy seeing a little bit of the behind the scenes, but we're having a few issues. Um, but, but yeah, you can follow me on all social media platforms. Well, Jasmine is keeping it 100 for the 100. And, um, I'm really excited that I got to talk with you today. I, from hundreds of miles away in Pennsylvania, I'm inspired by what you're doing and I hope others will be too. Please follow Jasmine and Jasmine, thank you for not just for talking today, but thank you for running for office. Thank you so much.